This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Uh, John Taylor is on the line. It's been a little bit. Um, playoff baseball is in full force. And just like we all expected, the Washington Nationals are going to probably win the NL pennant. Yeah, I, I definitely saw that coming. Well, it's funny. I picked them to win the World Series last year. So I'm going to go ahead and, and count that retroactively as mm. my pick for this Okay. I, I, I knew this was going to happen. I thought it was just the fact that Bryce Harper died so that the the Nationals could rise. I think he is the real hero here. I am already so in advance tired of the Bryce Harper narrative that's going to surround the World Series as if the Nationals, like, as if not having Bryce Harper somehow made the Nationals a better team. Like, yes, getting rid of the guy who was the rookie of the year and the MVP like four years ago and had a pretty good season in Philadelphia, all things considered. Yeah, getting rid of that guy made the Nationals a better team and allowed them to unlock the secret potential that was always like I, I, I just I don't want to engage with it, but there it is. It's, it's just something we're all going to have. It's it's going to be one of, if not the major narratives around the World Series, is the Nationals vis-a-vis Bryce Harper, which is unfair to both of them because obviously Bryce Harper has nothing to do with this. It's like yeah, it's like you know his absence does not make the nationals better. I don't think any, you know, at least on the surface. And and this is where I will, like, I will admit maybe and huge, maybe because I'm not a reporter who covers that team. I don't talk to those players, but maybe there is some clubhouse stuff. Like, cause it is notable. I think the way some national players have talked about, like the fact that the clubhouse feels different this year. Mm-hmm. And I, I can only assume that like, when you have someone like Harper who kind of sucks up oxygen like that, and especially last year yeah. with the constant, will he leave? Won't he leave? Like, you know, last year with Bryce, like got to make it, whatever. I can imagine that that kind of, you know, the atmosphere is probably a little different with him gone. And yeah. in the same way that like, if you were to take someone like, um, geez, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's different because it's, it, I obviously don't know how Bryce Harper interacts with his teammates, but imagine the same way if you were to take any superstar off any roster, things are going to feel a little different in the clubhouse because the one kind of constant magnet for attention is no longer there. Although the Nationals have mm. plenty of other guys. Well, it's funny, the Nationals have plenty of other guys who are who can be magnets for attention, but between, like, Anthony Rendon and Steven Strasburg don't like talking to reporters, or at least they don't like... Although, they, and again, neither really did Harper, but point being, like, that is the only thing where I, I will concede that maybe Harper's difference makes an absence, or Harper's absence makes a difference, rather. And that's not but his fault. That, like, it's not his fault that he... It's the same thing with Baker Mayfield and guys like that, where it's like, it's not their fault that they have enigmatic personalities that draws attention. And they're really good at their sport, and people care what they're doing. People care how much money they're getting paid. People care what their future is. It's not... I, I don't know how you can pin that on Bryce Harper making it a more enjoyable locker room this year if like it's not his fault that his contract's running out it's not his fault that he has to make it make up his mind on like what matters more it's not his fault that he's getting um contract offers in a note from his owner the last week of the season like it's not a lot of that i just i i don't think that the contract it's not his fault that the contract offer he got from the nationals had a hundred million dollars in deferred money and that's something where it's like I can understand the Nats fans spent the season upset that Harper left. I would be too if I were a Nationals fan. I don't want to see the guy who's been there since, like, you know, from the start, not from the start, but you know what I mean, who's been there his whole career and who, you know, is the superstar and everything. I don't want to see him leave either. But, like, to act as if this is something where it's like Bryce Harper had two identical offers and chose to leave Washington. 
Yeah. And that to me is just, it's it's like I get national fans being upset, but at a certain point, it's like why does Bryce Harper still matter to you at this point? You guys are going mm-hmm. to the World Series. You know, you're going to win the first pennant in franchise history. If nothing else, you at least made it out of the first round. You know, you're going to go yeah. to the World Series. Why do you care what Bryce Harper? What, what Bryce Harper? He doesn't have any part in this anymore. Just be happy that you have this team and that they finally did something. You know, if I were don't bury him for the Philadelphia thing, like it's already tough enough for him, man. And it's like, if I were an fan, honestly, I'd be pissed that they did, that they finally did this, but Harper isn't here for it. Yeah. Because this is fundamentally, I mean, you know, obviously aside from some differences in performance, but in terms of who's on the roster, with the exception of Patrick Corbin, this is fundamentally the same team that's been there for the last like two or three years. Mm-hmm. You know why is it that why is it only now that they're capable of doing? This? And it's like, and I mean, that's the, the, like is, maybe the most memorable the bigger, Nationals moment last year. I mean, the last couple of years in the playoffs was Bryce Harper's home run, right? Like, like he was still. It's not like he was even bad for them in the playoffs. No, he was he was awesome in that division series against the Giants. Um, he was good in that division series against the Cubs, I believe. Like, I I, I don't know I. I understand Nats fans being upset. I understand Nats fans wanting to like rub it in his face, like "ha ha, you left, and now we're gonna go to the World Series." Like, fine, okay, that's you want to be petty and stupid like that. I'm not gonna. I've certainly been petty and stupid as a fan many times. I'm not gonna tell other fans, you know, don't be that. But it's just like the whole the narrative, the Bryce Harper narrative that's going to exist is just so fundamentally stupid from the outset that. It, it just it bothers me that it's even it just bothers me that it's even going to be a thing. Because there's no logic to it. There's no, it's not about, it's not about logic. It's not about an actual fundamental difference. It's not about numbers. It's just about this constant dumb narrative that exists in professional sports where superstars for, for whatever reason, I guess, because they're superstars take on such a, like, just ridiculously huge kind of responsibility, I guess, so in in a manner of speaking, where it's like, Bryce Harper is just, he is a black hole when it comes to the Nationals. He just sucks up everything about them. And so, of course, everything the Nationals do in the wake of his departure is a referendum on Bryce Harper. And yep. so, and it just, it doesn't need to be that way because nothing about where the Nationals are, nothing about what they've done this postseason, nothing about them winning the pennant, nothing about them maybe even winning the World Series has anything to do with Bryce Harper. It doesn't. What what Bryce Harper did this season has as much effect on the Nationals as what I did this season. You know, it just it doesn't matter. It just does not matter because it's not like this isn't even a scenario where it's like, oh, Bryce Harper's departure meant that they're suddenly. It's not like as if, as if this happened the year before, and it's like Bryce Harper's departure opened up the space for Juan Soto. You know, we don't even have that. That that's not even a story. It's it is just simply Bryce Harper's not there, and the Nationals were finally good in the way we've expected them to be for such a long time. And maybe that has something to do with Harper. Maybe, and if it does, it is presumably purely in the clubhouse sense, like in the terms of team chemistry and all that, which is something you can't quantify anyway. But otherwise it's like, why are we, t- why talk about Bryce Harper? He says, having now talked about Bryce Harper for like 10 minutes, but like, regardless, it's, I, I am just like, I am just tired in advance of all the dumbness that's going to come out of that. Um, it's like every time I see like a national fan with like a, a, like a Harper Jersey that they've like, you know, mess with like, who, why are you, why, who cares anymore? Who cares? Who cares? Like, he's not, he doesn't matter anymore. He's with another team. Let him do his thing. Like, what do you guys care? You literally, you're literally going to win the pennant. Like be happy about that instead of just constantly like, like, you know, relitigating ghosts essentially like it's it's like someone who's obsessed with their ex-girlfriend and like who had a or or ex ex partner i guess and like yeah. had a really bad breakup and is still like fixated on that even as they're about to get married to someone else it's like maybe you should focus on the person you're getting married to <laughs> and less on your former partner who doesn't matter anymore like yeah you know it's really because there's nothing to say even though the phillies are kind of a train wreck there's nothing to say that next year or two years from now it won't be the phillies winning the pennant because Bryce Harper had an awesome season, and then what? You know? Yeah. Then, 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 then the narrative starts all over again or something. I don't know. There's always a narrative, basically. It never ends. Um, but in happier news, how are the Nationals dismantling 
the Cardinals in this series? What what are they doing? What has worked? Why are they on the verge of sweeping St. Louis out of the NLCS? I mean, the simple answer is just that when you have a rotation that has Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Patrick Corbin, you're gonna you should go pretty far because those are three of the like 20 best starters in the National League, if not all of baseball. I mean, you could argue Strasburg is one of the five best starters in baseball and Scherzer when he's healthy and he seems finally seems to be healthy again is also right there with him or maybe the other way around, whichever. Um, that's obviously a big part of it. Anibal Sanchez weirdly turning back into 2013. Anibal Sanchez helps a lot. Um, but I think that's another thing too, where that guy, you know, he was hurt for a good chunk of the season then came back. He, he looks healthy again. And I think that's the big difference. Um, it, it really, I think does start with that, with the pitching. And I think the crazy thing is that bullpen has suddenly kind of, I don't want to say found its stride because they really haven't had to use it a whole lot in the NLCS. Like they've gotten good long outings out of Sanchez, Scherzer and Strasburg. And so they've just been able to stay away from, because the problem with the Nats bullpen wasn't ever like, you know, Daniel Hudson is not your, your idea of like a, a shutdown closer. He's no, you're never going to mistake him for Mariano Rivera, even despite all the incredibly stupid um, you know, talk about him missing game one and how dare he. And it's like, which is, it's a whole awful thing, but like, you know, but he's a good pitcher and Sean Doolittle, even though he's been horribly overused and is probably pitching through some degree of injury is, is also a good pitcher. And they have guys with stuff like Tanner Rainey has really good stuff. Fernando Rodney, insanely enough at the age of like 85 still has some pretty good stuff. Like it's just that they have not had to rely as much on guys like Rainey, excuse me, and Rodney and the kind of non-Hudson, non-do-little portions of that bullpen. And when they have, they've just been able to get away with, you know, okay, here's Scherzer in relief. Here's Patrick Corbin in relief. Here's, you know, Strasburg in the wild card game. You know, I, I figured that the NLCS was going to be tough for them because in a seven-game series, they weren't really going to be able to get away with that. Um, they weren't going to be able to use starters in relief the same way they did in the division series. But, I mean, we, we saw this work pretty much exactly the same way last year with the Red Sox. Um, they had, you know, the two eight starters in Salem Price. They had a usable number three guy in Rick Porcello, um, although Corbin is certainly a better, better starter than Rick Porcello. And then, you know, when they needed to, they took starters and they put them in the bullpen and they just got outs however they could. And I think that's pretty much the only way a team like the Nationals can survive. And that's kind of what you're seeing is, you know, they're they're able to stay away from the bad parts of their bullpen because they're just basically deciding only the good pitchers will pitch and we will figure it's a it all strategy. out. It's a very bold strategy, but it's basically the idea, and I think Alice Cora kind of stumbled into it. It's like, we'll use our best pitchers, and we will figure out tomorrow tomorrow. Because the only yeah. game that matters is the game we're playing today. And I think that's really the only way you can approach the postseason. And I, I mean, some of this, too, is just like... Unless you're the, the Braves. Even, then, I mean, the Nationals wouldn't even be here if Trent Grisham hadn't overrun a ball in right field. Let's, I mean, let's, we should not lose sight of that. That you know Everything from that point forward, certainly they've played very well. But you know that obviously helped. And also... Dave Roberts losing his brain momentarily in game five and, you know, his obstinate decision to go with Clayton Kershaw certainly helped. Um, you know, there, there are, if you look back, there are plenty of moments where the Nationals could have been knocked out by now, but they haven't. They've survived. And I think it also helps that St. Louis just is not, I've never, I never looked at the Cardinals this season and saw a, a pennant contender. I, I, I thought they were perfectly, they were a mediocre team up until about the all-star break. They caught fire in the second half. Um, mostly thanks to Jack Flaherty suddenly turning into the second coming of Bob Gibson. They got helped a lot, obviously, in September by the Cubs completely falling apart down the stretch, which basically gave them the division. And even then, they barely survived the Brewers' run, too. Um, and then they got, I don't want to say lucky, but they, you know, that matchup with the Braves, and I, I'm sure you could go about go on about this for literally days, but that Braves team clearly a little overrated, I think, you know, certainly the pitching was a problem. And then the way they just flat out gave up in game five. I mean, you can't really do a whole lot about that. Um, I, I think so. I think the national kind of, in a sense, got lucky that they got, a, they got to match up with a Cardinals team that certainly is not the, not the best in the national league. That was the Dodgers. And that certainly had one of the weaker offenses in the postseason. I think you're seeing that now is that, you know, this Cardinals team was okay. They were an okay team offensively. And, you know, they've they've now run into the issue. It's like, oh, we have to face three of the best pitchers in baseball, a combo of like minimum five times in seven games. That's usually not going to work out for you. So, 
you know, I think that's probably how the Nationals are here. Because otherwise, I mean, they, you know, they've gotten some big, they've gotten timely hits. They're very good. They're a good team in the clutch. It seems like um, that obviously makes a big difference too. Um, how would the Braves have handled this series? Because you you pointed out that um, there, it turns out that uh, using your best pitchers on the day of just figuring it out after the fact is a better strategy in the playoffs where things can change on a dime and just you never know how the rest of the series is going to go that you just you exhaust all of your your certain resources and then you deal with the the fallout of that later on um mike soroka only pitched in one game in that in the nlds and i think that ultimately is like one of the biggest issues with how the braves handle that series in general and giving it up to um, the Cardinals. I, I do wonder if they'll learn from it and look at what the Nationals did um, and be like, oh, we should probably do that and make sure that Mike Fultonevich and friends are not uh, are not in in line to save our season when you still have guys like Soroka and everything else. And don't worry about when they'll be able to pitch again after that because just use the guys that you know are good. And Soroka was your only known commodity, really. Yeah, and I think the, I mean, the other issue the Braves are into is Freddie Freeman was clearly hurt. Something is clearly wrong with Freddie Freeman. He had a terrible series all the way around. I would not be surprised yeah. if it was the elbow that was bothering him. I think it was throughout the throughout the back half of the season he had an elbow issue, right? Mm. And it was bad. Um, like there was another flare up in the last two weeks of the regular season, and then people are getting on Snicker about like why is he playing if he's hurt and right. everybody clinched? Like what are you doing? What what is the point of this? Right. And I would assume that. I mean, obviously that was like you you have that lineup with Freddie Freeman compromise. It just hurts a lot. Um, they never really, excuse me, they didn't get much production out of the back half of that lineup. The ongoing death of Nick Markakis is a really big problem for them. Um, although but I guess you can't he, uh, discount that veteran presence that Nick Markakis. Although I was, I was going to say he's a free agent. He's a free agent, right? Or is he have a player? Uh, yes, he's a free agent. Okay, so I, I assume him Donaldson. Back. Yeah, no, they have yeah. a lot of interesting Donald, guys that are Donaldson. Yeah. Donaldson didn't have a particularly good division series, which I mean, it's, it's a very, it's obviously a sample size of just five games, but he, he obviously didn't particularly play well. The injury to Chris Martin really killed them, not just in terms of, you know, the, the immediate cascade effect it had on that particular game, but losing one of their more reliable relievers. Um, and, and they just never really found that super reliable bullpen arm. I know Melanson was good for them down the stretch, but obviously was just a disaster in game one. And, they just never, I don't think, found that kind of go-to reliever that they could use. Even with the trades they made, I just, I just don't think they ever really landed on that guy. So, which, I mean, that there's probably something to be said there about the Braves kind of not utilizing enough of their resources in terms of, you know, they knew all season that the bullpen was an issue, and that they did try to fix it at the deadline. You know, they got Melanson, they got Martin, they got, I believe, someone and else. They were good. There, right? Green, Shane Green. Jane Green, that's the other one. Um, and they were they were good and they were usable, but it's like, you know, you could have done more in the offseason, certainly. You could have aimed for, you know, a more reliable reliever, although I guess the most reliable reliever that would have been out there is Felipe Vasquez, and that's certainly someone that I imagine every team is now very glad that they didn't uh, acquire. Yeah. Um, but I think, too, there's that idea of, like, you know, they went into the season intentionally with Nick Markakis in right field. Mm. You know, that's not... That, you, there was no real reason to do that. And I understand they couldn't afford like, a Bryce Harper. They could afford a Bryce Harper. They could afford at least better than Nick yes. Markakis, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that's going to be a thing, an interesting thing for the Braves to figure out this off season is again, they're, they're going to come back with that exact same core. You know, nobody is leaving. Everyone's just going to get a year older, which is not really a big deal for, I think really anybody. And the only free agent of note aside from Markakis is, who one of one of those relievers maybe like Dallas I mean, Keuchel, Donaldson. I and, and Donaldson that's right so they'll lose Donaldson they'll lose they'll lose Keuchel, are you sure they'll lose Donaldson I don't know I, I think I there's think, a real problem that they might actually give him like two or three years well I think he would get a multi-year deal from someone I just don't think it's going to be the Braves because I think mm. I mean they have I mean I know they played Austin Riley in the outfield I assume mostly because Donaldson was already at third base but is Riley the third baseman yeah. of the future there I don't think anything is certain with Austin Riley right now. I mean, that's which is something that the Atlanta front office has to figure out. That I think his his presence 
would probably be enough if they've decided he can play third base adequately, that they're not going to give a lot of money to Donaldson. Who And, the, and that's the other thing is yeah. Donaldson is, what, 33, 34? Yeah, you know, he he's not, 30, he'll be 34 next year. Right, so I, I can't see a, an Atlanta team that has been mostly allergic to long-term deals for veterans, except for, weirdly, Nick Markakis, um, you know, giving giving Donaldson the money in the years he's going to be looking for coming off the season he just had, especially because he is in the enviable position of being the the clear, like, 1B to Anthony Rendon's 1A this offseason. You know, whoever yeah. misses out on the Anthony Rendon sweepstakes, well, number one, it's either going to be whoever misses out on the Anthony Rendon sweepstakes or whichever team reaches out there to Scott Boris, finds out what Rendon's ask is, and then immediately turns to, well, actually, that's funny. I think, is Donaldson also a Boris client? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'm actually, I'm going to look it up just because it would be, it would just kill well, me. Well, while you're looking he that is, up, I also no, think... Okay. So um, I can imagine that, you know, if it's if it's not waiting to see who gets Rendon, it's teams proactively being like, we're not in the running for Rendon, but Donaldson will be cheaper and 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 um, take a, a shorter commitment. Let's just go and get him now. So I think... I think it's going to cost, it would cost the Braves a pretty penny to keep him. And I just don't see them doing that if they have an in-house option in Riley, even if he's not maybe fully ready to take that job. I think more likely is that they, they bring in some kind of cheap veteran to kind of hold down the fort in case Riley's not ready. And then, you know, kind of sink or swim with him. I, I, I could see that being a thing. I, um, and then I wonder, too, the Indians, they miss the playoffs. Do, do things continue getting worse for them? Do they – I mean, Jose Ramirez, before he went down for the season, he had that awful first couple of months, and then he caught fire again and turned into Jose Ramirez. Then, of course, you also have the Francisco Lindor um, craziness, and they're already um, residing themselves to the fact that he's not going to be on the roster in a couple of years. I, I wonder – who calls about that? Like if they lose the Rindo and sweepstakes, Donaldson is asking for too many years. Then you're like, Ooh, let's call Cleveland. Let's see what they want for Jose Ramirez and or Francisco Lindor. And I think a lot of teams are probably going to be calling Cleveland anyway, because I mean, if nothing else, teams would probably be asking about Corey Kluber. Um, yeah. Maybe, although who knows after the season he just had. And because Cleveland's always, you know, always gives off that air of, Hey, you know, we're open for business. Um, but yeah, it's it that's going to be interesting to see like those kind of the also ran playoff teams, the ones that you know really should have been there but weren't, like Cleveland, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, Mets. Um, you know those teams that are either kind of they either should have made the playoffs or were on the cusp of making the playoffs, or at least like close contenders, and who theoretically at least have money to spend or should have money to spend. It'll be interesting to see what they do. I think more than any other teams. We kind of know, like, Houston, the Dodgers, the Yankees, um, you know, those those teams probably aren't going to do too much. I think they're all going to be in the running for Garrett Cole, or I guess in Houston's case, to keep Garrett Cole. Um, but on, There's a lot on of the race whole, fans like, that think Garrett Cole is a realistic possibility, and I'm just like, oh, God, that's not it's not happening. It, it's, it's not I mean, happening. Garrett Cole is not yeah, going to be an Atlanta Brave. No, but I, I think... I think it's going to be because those, those three teams, though, I think are very, they're just, they're already well set for the future. You know, they're clearly the three best teams in baseball, just on a, on a general level, regardless of whether or not any three of them win the world series. So obviously the Dodgers can't, but, and so I think it's, you know, so there's not a whole lot of suspense as to what they're going to do in the off season. They're probably going to stay status quo because for the most part, they don't need to make big moves. They are already really well set. You know, they kind of have to do some stuff around the edges. And I imagine you know, all three will be involved in the Garrett Cole conversation, probably less so for Rendon, because I don't really see, I don't think they're at any of those three as an opening at third base, unless the Dodgers get wacky with Justin Turner. But I think the most interesting kind of the more interesting teams to watch in free agency will be the ones I just mentioned who are on, who are kind of the playoff, the, the kind of the second tier of contenders, you know, those teams and the Cubs. I think you could add the Cubs too to that list that are just one step down from there who really kind of need to either do something big this off season or are kind of in a position where they need to do something big this off season or, you know, or hire gay cap, Dave Kapler. Right. <laughs> or hire Gabe <laughs> Kapler. Um, I think those are going to be the most interesting teams to watch. And I think the Braves are probably so like slot into that level too, because I think this postseason and last postseason kind of 
I've kind of made it clear that they are they are a step below that that top tier. They are not there yet for a variety of reasons, and that this offseason will could be a really big one for them because I know you said like you know they're not going to be players for Garrett Cole, and I tend to agree that they're not the team that's going to put the, put out that kind of um, expend that kind of money. But they, I think they need to do they need to do something this offseason to kind of either bolster that rotation and give themselves a more dependable arm. And I think that, you know, obviously Cole would be the ideal, but maybe it's someone like Hyunjin Ryu. Um, or they just need to go out there and get more bullpen help. Because I think that was obviously the one issue that they had all season long, and it certainly hurt them again in the postseason. Um, and so I think, that, yeah, they're right, they're right there with all those other teams, like the Mets and the Red Sox and the Indians, who, you know, that, they're, they're the teams that are going to make for the most interesting a winter i think for sure um what do you think has been the most impressive thing um about the nationals in the in the playoffs thus far was there anything to kind of put a bow on the nl ds like what is it about this group that's on their way to up in it that's just been the most the most interesting most surprising um or really just most impressive thing for them well, obviously impressive. I think impressive is obviously just what their pitching has done. I think what, what Stras- the, the way Strasburg is pitching, you know, the way Scherzer has kind of bounced back, um, the way Animal Sanchez is pitching. And surprising, I think, was, is like the way that Howie Kendrick is hitting, that Ryan Zimmerman, you know, those guys looked. I mean, Howie Kendrick had a great year. Ryan Zimmerman was hurt for most of it. But I don't think anyone really expected those guys to be, you know, a big part of the offense, and yet they have been. I guess same with Adam Eaton. Um, I think that's, and I think, Ultimately, you know, it's, I think it's impressive, too, that for as horrible as that bullpen is, that they really have only blown one game, um, which was game three of the NLDS. Where Cor- and, that was, and that was Corbin in relief. So I don't even know if you can really so much blame the bullpen for that one. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, you know, they haven't been perfect throughout the postseason, but that's really the only game where you can look at, look at it and go, yeah, they just flat out blew that one. Um, I know they gave up runs in game one, but that, they were already losing that, and that just turned a close loss into a bigger loss. So I, I think that's kind of impressive to me. It's like everyone expected this bullpen was going to be an utter disaster for them all October, you know, that they were going to struggle to hold leads constantly. And really, it's just been that one time in the NLDS where they, you know, just kind of spit the bit. And ever since then, they've they've managed to hold. And I know it's like you know, like I already said, a lot of that is because they've been kind of unconventional in their bullpen usage. They've been able to, you know, turn to their to their starters when they can. They've been able to avoid using those kind of middle tier guys who aren't as dependable. But if nothing else, you know, they're they're going to be in the World Series despite having arguably the worst bullpen in ever. And that's that's pretty impressive, you know. Even maybe even more so than what Strasburg has done or how good Anthony Rendon has looked is that they have made it this far. They're going to win the pennant despite having that awful, awful bullpen. What are the chances the Nationals could actually win a seven-game series against the, the Astros or the Yankees? Pretty slim? I think I think pretty good. I mean, certainly they've already okay. shown. Again, I think, I think a lot of it is just having Strasburg, Scherzer, and Corbin. And that they, and yeah. the, the other thing, and this is going to be something, regardless of whether or not it's the Yankees or the Astros, I think this is something that is worth noting, too. The, the Nationals actually have a viable fourth starter in Anibal Sanchez. Neither the Yankees yeah. nor the Astros really have that. I mean, if game four of the LCS is almost certainly not going to happen as scheduled because the weather in New York is supposed to be really, really bad on, on Wednesday. But if it were to happen, it's going to be a bullpen game for both teams. Neither of them really has a fourth starter they trust. The Yankees are going with, you know, the Yankees have a three-person rotation of Tanaka, Paxton, and Severino. The Astros obviously have Verlander, Cole, and Granke. But the Astros don't trust Wade Miley. The Yankees don't trust Jay Happ or CC Sabathia. You know, they lost Domingo Herman. That is, I don't know if it's, a, it's necessarily an advantage, but it is something the Nationals have going for them is that they do have a fourth starter. They don't have to, you know, they're not going to have to get wacky in the middle of a series by just throwing a bunch of relievers at someone. And, you know, especially because, you know, game four of the World Series is going to be in Washington, so it's going to be with NL rules which means a bullpen game is going to be all that much harder. You know, you can't just necessarily lean on a guy for two or three innings because his spot in the order might come up. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing to see how that plays out is going to be that game four matchup between, or uh, whoever pitches game four. I don't know if it's going to be Anibal Sanchez or, or what. It depends on how the Nationals organize their rotation. It, it probably will be Sanchez, but that is definitely an advantage they have. And I think, you know, they, 
they can go toe to toe with the Astros and starters. I think they obviously have the edge on the Yankees in terms of starters. Um, that lineup certainly seems plenty capable to me. They've, you know, they've handled everyone pretty well. I think Walker Bueller's really the only starter they haven't gotten a grip on. And to be fair, Walker Bueller's a really, really good pitcher. Um, I think they can hang with either. I think I would probably like either AL team a little more if you were to ask me to make a World Series prediction, but I certainly think the Nationals can hang, and I think they can make it a series. I think it's just a matter of, you know, they'll have the starting pitching advantage against the Yankees. I think they'd be pretty much even with the Astros. It's just a matter of, you know, how well can they hit? And again, as as in the case with this NLCS, how much, how much, how many innings can they avoid giving to the bad parts of their bullpen? You know, how many innings can the good pitchers soak up in a seven game series against what in one way or the other is going to be a really, really good offense. Yeah. Um, what do you think of the, the playoff baseball argument? What, what do you, what is uh, your, uh, not even just a hot take, but what is your, uh, what is your thought process on uh, MLB and the state of the baseball right now? Are you talking about the whole juiced, de-juiced ball? Yes, uh, yes, that is exactly what I'm talking about. So I don't, and I, I think that, I forget who said this, I saw it on Twitter and I, I can't remember who said it, but I, I tend to subscribe to the theory that it doesn't have to be nefarious to be a scandal. Because I think there is a lot, there are a lot of folks right now who are just jumping right out and saying, like, MLB is monkeying with the ball intentionally. You know? I don't necessarily believe that's true, mostly because I don't really see how they could do that so easily, essentially. I mean, maybe I'm just being dumb on that. I do believe, like, you know, what Rob Arthur BP pointed out, I mean, the science behind it is valid, the, the numbers are valid, like, I believe it. But I don't, think it I don't think it has to be something where it's like MLB is like intentionally doing something shady. I think it is plenty bad enough that this is happening and MLB can't, can't or won't give us a straight answer on it. That's really bad on its own. Like the, the, the central product that is integral to how this whole damn thing works is behaving differently at a very particular point of the year. And it's having a real impact on the most important games of the year. And yet MLB cannot or will not say what the difference is or why it's different. And that's honestly kind of ridiculous. It doesn't matter whether or not MLB did it on purpose. Honestly, it's almost worse if they didn't. If this is just some random fluke thing where it just so happens that, you know, they own, like, the balls just happen to be a different batch or something, that's almost worse. Like, at the, but at the very least, like, the, the league should have to say something or explain something about you know, how on earth is this happening? Because I do believe that they're like, we've seen, and it's not just, it's not just the numbers that guys like Rob Arthur point out. We can see it. We can all see it with our own eyes. You know, we are seeing balls that, you know, during the season would have cleared a fence. I think, you know, the one that stands out to me the most obviously is the Will Smith fly out in game five of the NLDS. That I, everyone in the stadium, everyone on the Dodgers bench, everyone watching on TV at home thought that was a home run. Will Smith thought it was a home run. The, the pitcher on the mound, Daniel Hudson, thought it was a home run. Everyone thought it was a home run, and somehow it dies at the track. You know, how is that the case? How, like, I, I, don't, I don't know what the, what, you know, again, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I feel like MLB should have to say something because it, it should be a genuine scandal that the balls are different in some way, shape, or form during the postseason after a record-setting home run crazy regular season. I think Rob Manfred should come out and say that, like, honestly, guys, don't even know. Haven't looked at the balls this postseason. It could be anything. I think he should leave it to uh, the to, to just curiosity. That would be my favorite thing. I, He's I mean, just like, honestly, man, I don't know. That's basically what they've done. Every every statement yeah. he's put out has basically been just one giant shrug and been like, uh, we don't know. Like, we're not we're not doing. How, why would we know? We're only the MLB league office. How would we know such things? And which, of course, it gets even more stupid when it's like MLB owns Rawlings. Like, they own the ball <laughs> manufacturer. They can't really get away with... Um, they can't really get away with just saying, like, we don't know. It's like, you own the ball manufacturer. It's your ball. It is literally your ball. And you're telling me, like, you, you don't know what's wrong with it? That, that just can't, that can't happen. Like, you can't have a league do that. And it's just kind of weirds me that more people aren't kind of like, like, I know this issue has been raised a lot, but aren't, you know, and, and I imagine during 
during uh, Manfred's press, because he's going to do a press conference like he always, like the commissioner always does during the World Series, I have to imagine that that's going to be one of the main lines of questioning from reporters is what's going on with the ball? Like, how, how is this a thing? Like, why has there been no explanation from the league as to why the ball is behaving differently? You know, that's, that has to be something the league has to talk about. And it can't just be the same stuff they've been doing or they've just been like, oh, we don't know. You know, that, that's not really acceptable during the postseason. Yeah, but I don't think we're going to get a definitive answer anytime soon, if ever. Um, last thing I wanted to t- touch on here. Um, a, a, the very good Rockies blog on SB Nation, Purple Row. Um, mm-hmm. They're diving into how you fix this Rockies team. And it's it's a really good deep dive and like just looking at data and uh, just how to win at cores and certain things they've done in the past. And I... I'm still, I don't know why in 2019, I'm still amazed at some of the splits for the Rockies, but home WRC plus 90 last year, uh, 90-ish, and then away was 70. Biggest differential um, in baseball. And their pitching was the exact same way. Um, biggest differential between pitching at home versus away. Um, I was just thinking about like how you fix this Rockies team. And there is a little n- interesting nugget in there where it's like they've experimented over the years with like Aaron cook and getting certain starters who all run a certain type of pitch. Um, and seeing if that will curve their, their fortune a little bit and that doesn't work out. And I, I do wonder if they're just, if you eventually you'll just run out of answers and how to fix this just crazy differential and um, making it a, a better place for pitchers to pitch and a better place um for hitters to just be able to hit on both um both at home and on the road i just um i would probably start with just signing better veterans like not ian desmond and daniel murphy and chris ionetta and uh just not a if you go through all of their offensive stats this year and their sortable stuff you're just like oh they're young guys all pretty interesting trevor story nolan arenado a lot of good stuff there charlie blackman still 32 still hitting um but guess what the rest of them all the other vets not good yeah and i think i think that kind of shows that there is kind of a deeper problem with the rockies because i know it's and it's you know it sounds like that that twitter memes like if i were the rockies i would simply get better players um yeah but it, it, it is one of the things where it's like, well, the Rockies haven't gotten better players because clearly their front office is not very good at major league player evaluation or scouting. Because you yeah. add up all the players that Jeff Burdich's front office has signed in terms of like stuff like wins above replacement, you're not getting much of a total. You know, because like no. you said, it's like Ian Desmond and Daniel Murphy and Brian Shaw and Jake McGee and Wade Davis and, you know, on and on and on. Uh, Gerardo Parra, it, it, it just doesn't really amount to much. And it's and then like and it's not just like the guys that they've ca- the guys that they've signed. It's like you know they let DJ Lemayhew go and he goes and wins or almost wins the AL batting title, or even lesser mm-hmm. guys like they let they trade away Mike Talkman for nothing, and he becomes a very valuable backup outfielder for the Yankees. Like, and granted, part of that is the Yankees are just really good at what they do. They're really good at identifying players who are either undervalued or you know are potentially better than they're shown. But it also says a lot about the Rockies that they just don't seem to be able to evaluate what they have well. Nolan Arenado's pretty Nolan Arenado and Trevor Story and Charlie Black are their success stories. And granted, those are huge success stories. All three of those guys um, are fucking, you know, they're they're great players. But they need more than that. And that the problem, like as you, as we've kind of noted, props up when they try to bring guys from outside the organization because you can't develop everybody, and they just fail at that miserably. And so that suggests it's like, well, then the front office is doing something wrong. And there's plenty to suggest too, like, and again, and just the way that like guys leave that organization and get better and not just, not just pitchers, but hitters, that they're doing something wrong just at a major league level in terms of just using the anal- the data and, and information they have or in communicating it to players or in having players use it, but whatever it is, because I don't know, because I don't, you know, I don't cover the, the Rockies. Clearly they're not doing, they're, they're, they're doing something wrong. And so I, I'm just kind of, Personally, I'm just kind of like skeptical of the Rockies getting better because I think it has to start with a different mindset slash front office. Because I, I don't think there's anything this front office has done in the last few years um, that really suggests that they know how to fix what's wrong with the Colorado Rockies. You know, there've been yeah. a lot of player develop like internal player development success stories in terms of. Um, you know, the guys that they've brought up through their farm system, like obviously like Arenado, like Story, like briefly uh, Kyle Freeland, um, 
Herman Marquez, briefly uh, John Gray, but they either can't keep those. And, and then you look at that pitching staff, they can't keep that level of performance up, which also suggests that there's something wrong there. You know, because it's obviously not, not everyone, not every player's growth is linear. And obviously yeah. just because a player is good one year doesn't mean they're going to be good forever. But for those, especially for a guy like, you know, for Freeland and Marquez and Gray to take the steps back that they did suggests that there's something not working there. That something about what the Rockies are doing is not working properly. Although I guess actually Gray had a pretty good season. But, you know, Freeland struggled. Like, and, and some of that obviously is just having to deal with Coors Field. And there's no real easy solution to that. But you can't run out an offense that is below league average at Coors Field, you know? You just you can't do that. And that suggests that there's just something that the Rockets are doing wrong. And the fact that they target guys like Ian Desmond or Daniel Murphy and just don't they just do not seem to make the right decisions in free agency, all of that just points to I think that team needs a new approach. And a new approach generally means a new front office. So I'm I'm just skeptical that Colorado can do what it takes to make things better because nothing they've done over the last few years, you know, suggests that they know how to do that. I don't think that's what's going to happen here. I think they're just going to do some retooling and um, I don't know. I mean, Marquez and Gray are still, they were still really good for them last year. Um, I wonder if they just, I mean, go after Dallas Kiger or somebody like that, or just, I mean, it's easier said than done than just getting the guys who the Mike Soroka types who just get this insane ground ball rate and whether or not that actually happen in Colorado over a full season or multiple seasons, probably unlikely. Um, I don't know. I, they were off and on in the playoff picture this year, and they obviously finished one game up on the Padres in the NL West, and the Padres made some sweeping changes here, and it seems like they're going to be pretty bold in how they handle this offseason. The Diamondbacks are hanging around, and the Dodgers shouldn't be going anywhere, and the Giants, probably the hardest team to forecast uh, in this division, I would say, um, going forward. But Yeah, if only, I, I, if only because like they have, they have so many things they could do. Right. You know, and they have... You know, it, yeah, the Giants are the Giants are kind of a weird wild card because they either could just have another quiet off season where they kind of just collect like smaller pieces and keep trying to figure out what their core is, or they could just kind of go wacky. I, I yeah. don't think they're going to go wacky, but that's certainly always a possibility. With the Giants, especially because that ownership um, does not seem to enjoy the idea of rebuilding, and certainly I don't right. think they're going to rebuild, but they don't they don't seem to have any interest in that anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'm right there with you. All right, John. Well, good to have you back on the podcast. Is uh, there anything you would like to plug before you get out of here? Um, nothing crazy. If you're picking up a copy of this year's BP annual, I'll be writing the Red Sox essay for that one, mm. which is going to be a lot of fun um, because that is I have to turn that in in about a month, and it would really help hire the a Red GM Sox. before then. Yeah, I would really like them to because that would help <laughs> a lot. Um, but that's, uh, that's something coming obviously whenever the annual comes out, which I believe is uh, beginning of next year, I'll be doing the Red Sox, uh, essay. Uh, other than that, um, nothing really at the moment, just kind of, you know, looking for opportunities, uh, trying to get some freelance work. So anyone listening, if you're in need of a baseball writer or really a writer for anything, hit me up. I'm, uh, I'm available for your, for your services. Go do that. Hire John. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Good, sir. Thank you, man. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast. I'm now joined by friend of the pod, Bill Plunkett. Bill, good afternoon, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I haven't been on an airplane in about a week now, so that's good. Okay, so you're really enjoying the post Dodgers um, experience right now. It is. You really, unless you've gone through it, you really have no idea what a grind it is covering uh, a, a team that goes deep in the playoffs. And obviously, did it to the very end two years in a row. And I believe I counted them up. I think in 2017, it was, uh, I think it was 48 straight days. I worked and, you know, wrote something every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last year, it ended a little earlier. So it was, uh, I think, like 45 days. It's, it is really difficult. Last minute, you know, travel, uh, late nights, early mornings to get to an airport. It is an amazing grind. But the 
positive part of it is you know people are reading what you write because they're the most important games, the most important stories of the year. What was your favorite playoff story this year to write for the Dodgers? Uh, I think the most interesting thing, and I'm actually typing away, chewing at it a little more, is the Kenley Jansen situation. And mm. is he still, he's, he wasn't an elite closer this year, that's for sure. Is he still going to be the closer next year? I think a lot of some of the decisions or a lot of the factor in game five, all the pitching moves that went back, you know, blew up in their face were kind of reverse engineered from the premise of let's minimize uh, the damage Kenley Jansen can do. Let's put him in a position where all he has to do is just get three outs and we're, we're out of there. Don't ask him to do any more than that. And I think if you move backwards from that, then you end up with Joe Kelly going two innings, which was bad. You end up with Clayton Kershaw facing guys he shouldn't have been facing, which worked out bad. So I, I think to me, that's their number one dilemma going into the offseason. What is Kenley Jansen at this point in his career? And what do you do about it? What are you thinking right now if you're Clayton Kershaw? And also, what are you thinking if you're the Dodgers front office in terms of the Clayton Kershaw future? I think that the front office has only begun to get realistic about Clayton Kershaw. I think that not starting him, just a knee-jerk reaction, start him in game one of the playoffs was a sign that they're moving on from him a little bit. And Walker Bueller is essentially the ace. I wouldn't call him the staff leader because a veteran like Kershaw is still that, still the bell cow who kind of sets the pace and uh, is a leader in the clubhouse. Uh, But Bueller is the ace now. And that's a step in the right direction. That's like, uh, you know, the 12-step program. That's the admission that you have to move on. but the decision to use him out of the bullpen the way they did made no sense to me and seems to be a sign that they haven't, they really don't, sorry, Sparty. They really don't uh, believe in him as they don't see him as who he really is right now. I still think they uh, overrate his abilities. I mean, he came into that game with an 89 mile an hour fastball and then, you know, a flat slider. He doesn't have overpowering stuff anymore. He's just not that guy. Uh, so I, I think there's some, you know, they have to be realistic about that. I think they're getting there. As far as what Kershaw is thinking about, I hope he has put it, you know, to a corner of his brain and is enjoying those two cute kids that he has. And that's the best therapy you can, you can have after you know a brutal brutal failure on the big stage again i i just i hope he's enjoying the kids and he didn't go home and you know mope in a corner or any of that kind of stuff what was the locker room like after that game incredibly somber really quiet uh you know i i taped some of the interviews we did post game and all you can hear in the background uh, is the sound of the clubbies taping boxes closed, you know, ripping tape, that, that sound. Mm. Uh, and that's it. There were a handful of guys sitting at their lockers, just kind of staring at their phones. Um, a lot of red, uh, red tinged eyes. It was, it was shock. They had no expectation of going home early this year. They thought they were far too good for that. It just goes to show it's so hard to win in this league and it's so hard to just run the gauntlet year after year in the postseason and not capitalizing on the last two years. I mean, it finally came back to bite them, but um, it it's just sad. Now you got to look at, okay, now you didn't get there this year. Um, there's no guarantee you're going to be as dominant next year as you were this year. Like, what are you, if you're Andrew Friedman and company, you've already talked about Jansen, you've got um, some interesting free agent decisions to make anyway. Um, How concerned are you about just running it back with a lot of these same guys after not even advancing to the NLCS this year? Yeah. Yeah. We threw those questions at Andrew on, on Monday 
And I specifically phrased it that way. I mean, after the shock of this early departure, you know, from the playoffs, does this mean that you do, you make more changes because of how abrupt and shocking it was? And his response was no, you don't do anything different just because of that. Now there may be changes and there may be uh, things that they diagnose about that early playoff loss that leads them in a certain direction this off season, but they won't do something just because they got, you know, bounced in the first round. And I, I think that's what you should want from the, the head of baseball operations. I don't think you want someone making emotional, uh, you know, in the moment knee jerk decisions like, Oh, Oh, we lost in the first round. We got to do every, Oh, get everybody out of here. Clear the house. You know, you can't do that kind of stuff right. and be a perennially successful club. Like they, they are, uh, you know, they won 106 games. And now I tend to think that total was inflated by the mediocrity and worse that made up most of the national league, but there's still the class of the league, even if they do, just, you know, don't change anything and come back the way they were. If you had to guess the biggest change they make this winter, what do you think it is? Uh, I know people would love to say me to say that uh, they signed Garrett Cole or they signed Anthony Rendon or something uh, at that level, but it would be a real break from history under Andrew Friedman. It would, it would be a yeah. real change in philosophy to make that kind of uh, commitment, you know, in years and dollars that it would take to get one of those guys. I think they'll sniff around both of them, but I don't see that happening. Uh, I think the biggest change will probably be at closer. I don't know. I can't tell you what they're going to do or how, but I cannot, it just would not be smart to come back next year and say, Kenley's our guy. Uh, and the one thing you can say about the Dodgers front office is they do smart things. They don't always work out, but they do the thing that was, is smart and they don't do the dumb thing. Uh, I think that would be a big mistake to come back and rely on him again. Um, but who they end, you know, who they go out and get, who do they develop internally to be that guy? I don't, I don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, I could see them being a player somewhere for say an outfield free agent um, mm. like they did last year with Pollock. Cause that didn't work out real well. Yeah. Um, though they're, you know, they're not willing to throw him under the bus at this point, but I, to me, that contract looks like an albatross right now. So I could see them sniffing around and doing something in that way. Mm. They have plenty of trade, uh, trade chips they could use too. Yes. I think both Kike Hernandez and Jock Peterson uh, yeah, I think they're in their final year of arbitration. So that's going to drive up their salaries and they, they may be become even Corey Seager, you know, right? There's always been some yeah. weird stuff with Seager. Well, see the, the, the thing with Seager is you can see them making a move there because Gavin Lux could just move back to his natural position and play shortstop. Mm. Um, or you could, you know, make some other moves, get a third baseman like Rendon. And Turner becomes a first baseman, you know, something like that. So there, there's moving pieces. I think Peterson and Kike are both trade chips because they've become uh, too expensive as platoon players. And they're both just part-time players as productive as Jock was. Um, you know, do you really want to pay $10 million for a guy who only plays against right-handers or, you know, 6 million for, uh, TK to only play against uh, left-handers. Uh, so they may be more valuable to somebody else who would play them more. Um, so they become trade chips. And and then there's, you know, it, it is a really strong farm system. There's always young guys coming and, and pushing their way uh, into the picture like we saw this year. I mean, Who's next? I, I, would imagine, I would imagine that Urias, Gonsolin, and May two of them, at least one, maybe two of them will be in the rotation to start the year next year. Hmm. That's interesting. So, I mean, cause they're, I mean, that's the other thing we're going to forget about this season with the, with the Dodgers is just how dominant they, and how just insane their starting five was for the majority of the season. Um, 
I guess that there are questions about Rich Hill going forward. There are questions about Kershaw now. I mean, he's 31. Um, I, I just, if you had to guess what their five man rotation looks like on opening day next year, what do you think it looks like? Who are the five? Uh, let's see. Bueller, Kershaw, Maeda. I think you can write them down in ink. Okay. And then I would guess Urias and May in the back. The back. Uh, Urias, no, I think you? you can. No, I, I don't think they resign him. I, and I think that's more okay. a case of his agent is, is Scott Boris, and he's going to cash in on that Cy uh, mm. Young level season as best he can. So he'll go wherever the most money is, and I don't expect the most money to be in L.A. Now, if he if if Hun Jin wants to say, listen, I've had success in L.A., I love living there, I'm comfortable there, make the best deal you can, uh, then maybe he comes back for two or three years. I don't think they make see them making a longer commitment than that. So it's going to be a push-pull between him and his agent there, and I think the agent wins. I don't think I, I think Rich Hill is a possible return as well, just because you know he he is really good when he's healthy, but he's not healthy very often. And a team like the Dodgers, with the depth that they have, can afford that luxury and say, "Okay, right. Rich, only make fifteen starts, and but be ready in October," which didn't work out this year. But no. I could see them taking another chance there. And if and Rich definitely wants to continue pitching. Uh, but he doesn't want to continue pitching for the Pittsburgh Pirates or, you know, a team that's just not anywhere near contention. That's not, he doesn't want that at his, this point in his career. So it kind of narrows the market. Um, did you ask any of the players about what they thought of the balls this postseason, if there was a difference between the regular season balls and the, the postseason balls? Not, uh, not formally, but uh, mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk about a couple Fly balls in particular, one Will Smith hit that I can think of. Yeah. Uh, that everybody just was stunned they didn't go out. And, you know, a month ago they would have been home runs. So there was definitely the conspiracy theory was certainly had fertile ground among a lot of people. Interesting. Were you surprised Dave Roberts um, was not let go this offseason and was brought back for another year? No, not at all. I, okay. I, I, I couldn't. I, I don't. I don't see how you make him the fall guy uh, mm. when he's only doing what you want him to do. I mean, the the pitching decisions that are made are not pre-scripted, but they go through all these things and they have a game plan and they have a an outline and they have matchups that they want and matchups that they want to avoid and you know to to now say. Oh, he, that was his fault. He's, he's out of here. I, I just didn't see that happening. That was, uh, you know, that's a natural reaction among fans, but fans, you know, fans don't always do want to do the smart thing. If, they, if we're up at the fans, the Dodgers would have, let's see, they would have fired Friedman. They would have fired Roberts. They would have traded Bellinger for, uh, who was it? Probably, uh, Cole Hamels or, you know, somebody a couple of years ago, uh, there would be no Corey Seager cause they would have traded him a few years before that. Walker Bueller would have been gone for real Muto. And, and the knee jerk reactions are not the right ones. And, and it just did not seem to me that, uh, Dave had done, had gone off the reservation, so to speak, uh, on his own. And you were now going to let him hang for that. I, it just didn't make sense to me. Who are you going to miss most covering uh, this year? Who might not be on the team next year? Or just who you're going to miss talking to from the team for a couple months? Uh, uh, You know, Rich Hill is always entertaining. Uh, He went to the University of Michigan. I went to Michigan State. So we have a Mm -hmm. nice little back and forth there. Um, He always has a thoughtful response to everything. You can just talk to Rich. Uh, Kenley and I actually have a really good relationship because – mean as I might be in some of the things I said, said about his situation, but he and I get along really well. And there's a lot of good back and forth. I like, he's a big uh, Lakers fan. And I like to tell him that the Lakers will never win a championship with LeBron just to kind of, kind of troll him and get him excited. Mm. Uh, it was, it was a a fairly good group in there. Okay. Okay. Is there uh, anything we should uh, check out from you this week uh, before we get out of here? 
I'm going to have a couple things on the site. If you, if you haven't seen it already, I went down the whole roster player by player, kind of a quick assessment of where they stand in the 2020 picture. That's still on the website. Going to do something on the closer situation that'll be going up later today. Um, the offense, uh, we'll be writing about the offense in the next couple of days too. The, they have been very productive during the regular seasons, but have not uh, been productive in the in the postseason. And uh, Andrew Friedman had a couple of good answers, thoughtful responses when we asked him about that the other day too. So that'll be popping up on the website. We'll try not to go dark for the winter quite yet. Okay, there you go, Bill. Always a pleasure. I um, always enjoy talking. Dodgers baseball with you. Enjoy your break, your time away <laughs> from the Dodgers and the grind of airplane travel. So um, enjoy it, and we will reconvene soon when the Dodgers wake up and do some other fun stuff. We'll we'll do some. <laughs> do some you got it. Thanks, I'll buddy. be here. See ya. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.